you would open up your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel this evening. 1 Samuel chapter 25. just want to thank Mark for inviting me to preach up here and um, very honored and for Caleb for his introduction. Um, very honored to do it. Again, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And I'll go ahead and start reading for us when you're there. First Samuel 25. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Verse 12, so David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword and about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. Verse 14, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us and we suffered no harm and we did not miss anything when we were in the field as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by day and by night. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this, consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. 
Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sias of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now, David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. In the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Verse 32, and David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my, with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Verse 35, then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him. 
and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Verse 42, and Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what do we do with that after we read that in our devotional time? Few stories, if you look back at verse one, there are very few stories that begin with death. Maybe a story starts with birth. Maybe a story starts with a long journey. But what kind of story starts with death? But that's exactly how the writer of 1 Samuel wanted to begin this chapter, which is itself kind of a self-contained narrative. Three words, verse one, now Samuel died. In writing, there's this strategy often that you contain the most powerful truths that you have to say in the shortest amount of words. I think that might be what we're seeing here. Samuel died. Don't let the brevity deceive you. Don't let how quickly it is to read deceive you. This is big. You see, when the news of Samuel's death spread through Israel, it created a stir. Look at the second half of this verse. All Israel assembled and mourned for him. Israel mourned. This was the spiritual leader of Israel. Samuel had entered the scene in a time with, as the beginning of this book tells us, the word of the Lord was rare. And thanks to Samuel, the word of the Lord wasn't rare for very long. Samuel acted as the spiritual leader of this nation through this turbulent time, more like a spiritual reformer. He spoke the word of God to the people. Samuel was also pivotal in the life of both Saul and David. He had anointed both of them as king. You see, David ran to him for shelter when Saul was pursuing him. But Samuel also loved Saul and he wept when he knew that the crown would be taken from Samuel. There's something in Samuel that loved Saul. He acted as a sort of mediator between these two rival powers, as much as could be mediated between Saul and David. This was the role that Samuel played. See, the book of 1 Samuel in many ways revolves around the throne of Israel. Saul is on it, but it's promised to David. And we have just lost the person who stands between the two of them and who stands as the spiritual leader of Israel. 
How is this all going to work itself out? So when we come to chapter 25 of 1 Samuel and we read the short little phrase, now Samuel died, you can maybe feel a bit of the tension that this short sentence now creates for the scene of Israel. The weight this reality creates for David himself. This was his ally. This was the one who anointed him and who spoke the promises of God to him. This was God's restraint on the sinfulness of Israel. Now he's dead, buried underneath the floorboards. The question in 1 Samuel 25 is, who will protect Israel? Especially when we have someone like Saul on the throne. Who will restrain now the sinfulness of this people? Who will care for Israel spiritually? And what and that's what this book is really all about. Who is actually on the throne? And in 1 Samuel 25, we get this very odd narrative, but in it, we see that it's actually the Lord who sits on the throne of Israel. We see his providence put on display in every little detail of this text. As much as this book is filled with clamoring for the throne, it's clear that God sits atop his throne unmoved. And that can be seen in just the little details of a story, just like 1 Samuel 25, as he works to protect his people and his promises. And as we look at this chapter, we find a critical piece to the puzzle of the life of David, one that we often can read past or overlook or that we don't teach in Sunday school. I was reading a biography last night and the biography opened with these words. Said this, quote, in reality, it is impossible to write a person's biography. Interesting things say at the beginning of a biography. For what we call a person's life constitutes only half of that person's existence. What he has done and thought, sought, what sins he has committed. A truly biographical sketch would require seeing the other half of a person's life as well. God's dealings with him. God's boundless concern for him. God's gracious watchfulness over him, end quote. That may be true of human biography, but that's not true of the Bible. What we find in 1 Samuel 25 is the other half of the biography, the half that uncovers God's gracious watchfulness over David, of God's dealings with him. And as we begin to look at how David graciously deals with David and with his people, we'll begin to see grace as something that's very tangible that plays itself out in life. And the hand of God clearer when we look at it in the life in the words of this chapter. You see, when we read this, we wonder what to do with it. But the reality is we aren't David in this story. Women, you aren't Abigail in this story. I don't know if anyone wants to be Nabal, but you're not Nabal. I don't think anyone's dying to be Nabal, but the one person who is, God is God in this story. And the more we watch his boundless concern for David, the more we will begin to see the little traces of his concern in the similar ways in our own lives. So let's look at this text together. I decided to title this message, The Fool, the Female, and the Frustrated David. (laughs) And that's how I want to go about this sermon. I want to introduce you to the fool, then the female, then the frustrated David. I want you to meet these people. I want to introduce you to them one by one. So let's begin with the fool. Let's meet Nabal. So let's look at verse two. 
And there was a man in my own whose business was in Carmel. Notice that the first thing we learn about this man is actually not his name, which is interesting. We learn about his business. He has a business in Carmel. If you look through this chapter, you see Carmel about six times. They want to keep reminding you he's from Carmel. The narrator is very careful to remind you this man is from Carmel. This was a strategic agricultural city in Judea. And although it was in Judea, the city leaned heavily in favor of King Saul. Remember, we have this balance of power going on. So this city leaned in favor of King Saul, not David. This is the city where just earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul erected a monument to himself in his own honor. That Carmel, that's where we're at right now. So we have a powerful man who does business in a city that leans in favor of Saul, not David. The next sentence in this passage tells us what we already assumed probably about this man. Tells us very bluntly, the man was very rich, very rich. You want to know how rich? Look at the next line. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And what was he doing? Look at the next line. He was shearing his sheep. In case you forgot, he's in Carmel. With his thousands of livestock, he's doing a shearing. I don't know much about that, but I know this is when the money comes in. This is when you're cashing in on your investment. And notice that the narrator tells you where we are again, Carmel, enemy territory, okay? That's where we're at. So I want you to think, what haven't we been told about this man yet? We've heard about his business, his big city, Carmel, Carmel, Carmel. We've heard about his possessions. We don't know his name yet, right? All that we know about this man so far is his possessions, which is interesting because people weren't really defined by their occupation until the Roman Empire. So to introduce a man by what he did is interesting in this kind of literature. Why have his possessions precede even his name and his family descent? Why aren't we learning about whose son he is? The narrator wants us to see in the black and white words of 1 Samuel 25 that this man's life whatever his name might be, revolves around his possessions, his property, his business, around his wealth. And only after being told about all his wealth and property are we finally told his name, and his name does not disappoint. Verse 3, now the name of the man was Nabal. In Hebrew, his name literally means fool. This word just does not just describe a simpleton or someone who was a bit slow, but as one commentator put it, a vicious, materialistic, and egocentric misfit. It describes someone who has a sphere of influence who squanders that influence that he has. He uses his influence for nothing. He's actually nothing himself. Throughout this, the Bible, this word is used with undertones of one who denies God, probably because a Nabal thinks that he is God, practically. This is the same word that is used in Psalm 14.1. You guys remember that verse? The fool, the Nabal, says in his heart, there is no God. Think about all the Proverbs that talk about the fool, the Nabal. As we will see, this man recognizes no authority other than his own. He lives up to his name, which for him is not a good thing. The author of this chapter wants to be very clear that you don't miss this. Nabal is a bad guy, and he only proves it by how he lives out the rest of this chapter. 
So when David sends men to ask for some provision in return, David was and his men were guarding this man's flocks. They were, said they put up a wall around them. So they were protecting them. And he sent asking just for some provision. We know you're feasting. We've been protecting your flocks. Is there any way we can get some compensation for that? I think the men, they wait nervously to see how this man named fool will respond to their request. And so do David's servants. Look with me at verse nine. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. You can almost feel how inconsiderate this man is. They waited at his door for him. These men have been protecting his flocks for him and they're outside his door. All they ask for is a bit of the feast that he's enjoying and he is in no rush to leave his little party even to respond to them. They waited. He waited even to go get the door. You can almost see him leaning back from his feast, raising up a one minute, finishing the rest of his glass, finishing the rest of his food. This is a man who's enjoying himself. And when Nabal finally does answer, it is no less insulting than not coming to the door. Look with me at verse 10. The first words out of his mouth. Who's David? Who is David is not a question anyone would really be asking in Israel. All you have to do is read the chapters before this to realize Israel knew the name David pretty well. The land had literally sung his praises. He was a war hero. Who's David? You can almost hear the spite, the condescension in his voice. Remember, we're in Carmel. And then he continues, who's David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. And that line proves Nabal knows exactly who David is. That boy who broke away from his master, Saul. This is Carmel. Nabal is clear in his spite. David is just a boy, a boy who isn't welcome here, a boy who should just go home. See, this was a wealthy, powerful man at the height of his luxury, demeaning and insulting this group of hungry men who obviously had nothing to offer him or his business or his reputation, not in Carmel. To him, David was nothing more than a boy who had broken away from his master, a boy who should just go home. Who's David? And like all fools, Nabal just keeps talking. Verse 11. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? What do you notice about that statement? What stands out to you about it? My bread, my water, my meat, my shears, mine. In Hebrew, there are eight uses of the first person pronoun in that sentence. His words are literally packed with himself. And now we can see, even in his first few sentences, how fitting our introduction was to Nabal. His possessions are even more a part of who he is than his name is, which is saying something. And the next time we hear of Nabal in this story, he is gorging himself at a feast like a king in verse 36. Let's look at verse 36. 
Let's read verse 36 and 37. And Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. Notice how he's described in these verses. The wine had gone out of him. His heart died within him. He became as a stone. He's like a big fleshy carcass that wine and pleasure just runs in and out of. Pleasure just satiates who this man is. And when his wife finally tells him the news the next morning, his heart died within him. What exactly made his heart die within him? I think we should ask. What it, was it that his wife betrayed him? I don't think so because he didn't so much as care or notice that she was even gone before this. What actually made his heart die within him? What was it about this? Look with me at verse 18. Let's back up a little bit. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on the donkey. What made his heart die? I think his heart died because he lost five of his sheep and a little food from his table. The narrator told us from the beginning, this man is his possessions, just like the narrator tried to show us. Don't miss a little detail though. In verse 36, Nabal is said to have been feasting like a king. Notice the like there. Who's on the throne again in this book? Look how that paragraph ends, verse 38. We'll see who's on the throne. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Simple power right there. Nabal feasted like a king. The Lord killed as a king. The Lord is on the throne in this book. The Bible has a lot to say about the fool. And if you've ever wondered as you're reading the book of Proverbs, what is the fool actually looking like in real life? You've just met him. A wise person fears the Lord and a fool rejects him. Nabal, fool. And that is exactly what Nabal did from his drunken, sloshing stupor. He laughed at and demeaned literally the Lord's anointed who was at his door asking for even just the crumbs from his table. Okay, now that we've met Nabal, I want you to meet his wife, Abigail. Let's back up. Let's rewind and start again. Just as the author wasted no time in explaining Nabal to us, he does the same thing with Abigail. Look again with me at verse three. The name of his wife was Abigail. Notice that we hear her name immediately. It's different than Nabal. The woman was discerning and beautiful. Verse three actually forms a chiasm. Listen to it again with me. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. See how their descriptions are kind of wrapped around each other here. We go from Nabal to Abigail to Abigail to Nabal. You almost feel the tension of this, this sentence creates. These descriptions don't belong in the same sentence, let alone the same marriage with each other. If Nabal was a fool, Abigail was discerning. 
And this word for discerning also comes up in the book of Proverbs. Here are just a few examples. Proverbs 12, 8. A man shall be commended according to his wisdom. That's the word for discerning, wisdom. Same word. But he that is perverse of heart shall be despised. Proverbs 16, understanding. Again, that's the word used to describe Abigail is a wellspring of life unto him that hath it. But the correction of fools is their folly. Notice how this word is always used in contrast to the idea of folly, of foolishness. It's the polar opposite. And that's exactly true of who Abigail is in this chapter. She is the exact opposite of her husband, Nabal. And the author tells us that immediately. I want, but I want to consider Abigail's function in this narrative. And what do I mean by that? What is she actually doing here? What does she do in this chapter? Look down with me at verse 26. She's doing something very simple, but very effective. Look in the middle of verse 26. Pay attention to the language. The Lord has restrained you. You talking about David. Notice that word restrained, restraining. The word is used throughout the Bible to speak of holding things back, holding back waters, pulling things back. That's what Abigail's doing here. God is restraining David through this wise woman. Many have maybe used this passage as a reminder to not let your temper get the best of you. Don't just go kill people when they don't give you food. Or to always listen to women, probably wise advice. But there's something even more central going on here in this passage. God is restraining David in this passage. He's pulling him back. Look at now that we've seen it, how this idea keeps popping up. Look at verse 33 with me. David says this, blessed be you who have kept me. Hear that word? Kept me this day from blood guilt. In other words, who has pulled me back from blood guilt. Look at the next verse, verse 34. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has, there it is again, restrained me. Look again at verse 39. David says, blessed be the Lord who has kept back his servant from wrongdoing, kept back. In David's mind, he knows exactly what just happened. See, Abigail saved David from becoming another Saul, from lashing out in violence, not over the honor of the Lord's name, but over the honor of his own name. I wonder how often we think about grace like that. Do you think about grace as just something that forgives your sins? It is that. But do you think about it as the hand of God holding you back from your own natural inclinations. That's exactly how David saw it. And I want to see it the way David saw it. He said in verse 32, God sent you this day to meet me. Post Abigail, David understood pretty well the sovereignty of God. He understood that it was God who pulled him back through this woman's actions. I just wonder if you ever consider how often God intercepts you on the road to your own folly? Do you ever think about his graciousness to build up walls in front of you, to block your efforts? How would we pray differently if we actually believed that about the character of God? 
Do you actually pray, God, frustrate my sinful purposes? Get in my way. Pull me back from my own natural inclinations. Hold my heart back from myself. I wonder if you thank God when he says no to you. Look at how David prays in verse 39. Blessed be the Lord who has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. How often do we say, blessed be the Lord who has kept me back from the things I wanted to do? That's what Abigail does for David. This is God upon his throne, working out his silent, still providence in a humble woman. The theologian uh, Herman Bovink wrote, quote, how little God is recognized for what he gives us, end quote. How little God is recognized for what he gives us. Amen. I would like to add, Mr. Bovink, how little God is recognized for what he also keeps us from. You see, even in David's folly, even in your folly, God does not relinquish his hold on a deeply sunken humankind. He still has his hands wrapped around your heart and is restraining you. And the most terrifying thing would be for God to loosen his grip even a little bit. For God to let you go. For God, as Paul would speak about it in Romans, to hand you over, to turn you over. Praise God that he wraps his hands around us, even in our own folly. Beg him to hold our hearts back from our own sinful inclinations. See, in her wisdom, Abigail acts as a restraint on David. But she doesn't just do that. She also urges him on in his face. She doesn't just act negatively, but also positively. She urges him on. Notice the content of her speech to David, which is kind of the turning point of this whole narrative. Abigail doesn't spend her time talking about how much food she has for David. David, I know that first plan didn't work out, but I brought so many figs. Abigail knows the promises of God concerning this man named David. And she speaks those into David's hurt pride. Who's David? Listen to me, David. I'll tell you exactly who you are. Look at just some of the things she says to him. Verse 28. The Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Does that language sound familiar to you? Those are the words of the Davidic covenant that haven't even been spoken yet. And she's speaking them into his his hurt. Verse 29, she encourages David. The life of my Lord shall be bound up in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. There's a lot going on in there. There's a lot of debate about what in the world that means. I'll just give you the Jack standard version. God has you bubble wrapped, David. He has you bound up and cared for. And she continues, verse 29. The lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Nice imagery, Abigail. She reminds him of Goliath, the sling. The great enemy who fell at his feet, not when he was fighting battles for his own name, but when he was fighting battles for the name of the Lord. See, Abigail speaks the words of the Lord to the anointed of the Lord. 
She tells him to remember the promises of God because they are sure and they are true. To remember that until God is done with you, he has you wrapped in his arms and cared for. And remember how he has cared for you in the past. Remember the battles you fought for the honor of the Lord, not the honor of your own name, David. See, if Nabal showed us a fool, Abigail showed us wisdom. Proverbs 11.2 rings true here. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Okay, now we've met the first two. I want to introduce you to the final character, David. Nabal and Abigail are in many ways very simple characters in this chapter. Those of you who study story or narrative, we might call them flat characters, actually. Predictable. Nabal starts a fool and ends dying in his foolishness. Fool to fool. Abigail starts out wise and beautiful and ends wise, beautiful, and married. Predictable, right, foundation? (laughs) But David is more complex here. We meet a different David in 1 Samuel 25 than we do in the first 24 chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. Think about the David we know, even just in the first past few chapters, if you've read this before. In chapter 23, before pursuing the enemy of Israel, the Philistines, David reverently sought the approval of the Lord to even pursue the Philistines. He sought it twice. God, can I pursue them? Yes. God, can I really pursue them? Yes. And then he did it. In chapter 24, after sparing his personal enemy, Saul, David is heartbroken for so much as tearing a little piece of his jacket. That's how sensitive the conscience of David is. This was the same David as a, as a boy who was so righteously anger, angry over a Philistine challenging the God of Israel that he faced him to vindicate the name of God, anything to exalt the name of Yahweh, even fighting a giant, I will do it. Same David. But now here we see, it's almost like something cracks in David a little bit. It's like we meet someone different here. He's infuriated over a cheap insult of someone who won't get up from his table. Not to God's name, but to his name. And he was willing over that little thing to kill a fat, rich man in cold blood. And I think we're all asking, what happened to our David? Who is this man that we've now met? I want to propose psychological toll. The events of his past weighed on him. Just two chapters ago in the book of 1 Samuel, David saved a city from destruction when the Lord commanded him to go in and save that city. Then he had to flee from that city because the same people he just saved were going to hand him over to Saul. And the text says that David and his men went, quote, wherever they could, end quote. That's 2313. Anyone who has couch surfed here? Guys, it's probably all of you, knows what that means. It means you have nowhere to go. So David and his crew run to the wilderness. Then in chapter 24, Saul hunts David deep into the wilderness. And when David has just the opportunity to kill Saul, he summons every ounce of resolve within him and does the right thing and even fights the encouragement of his followers. Just kill Saul, just kill him. He's right in front of you. And he restrains himself and he does the right thing. And even though Saul promises not to harm David, David knows Saul is no friend to keep. 
Saul returns to his palace and David returns to the rocks and the caves in the wilderness. Then we get to chapter 25, verse one, and now Samuel dies. This is what's been happening in David's life. And the people of Israel bury Samuel under his own floorboards. The one who was anointed David, the one who anointed David and knew God's plans for him is dead. And if we just begin to think about what it would be like to live through that, I think we can maybe in some ways resonate a little bit. I think there's a certain quiet temptation that often enters the heart after lots of good, unnoticed, unappreciated deeds, and nobody notices. There's something that says, does no one appreciate what I've done? I didn't kill him. He's right in front of me. I could have killed him, everybody. I didn't. I saved the city, and then they turned on me, and I'm in the wilderness. Does no one know who I am? Does no one know how much he says in the name of David in this? He's trying to say, I'm David. David is now in the wilderness with his group of rejects, and they just want some food. So they protect the man's flocks and they ask just for a little bit of food in return. And the message in return to his request is, who's David? And something in David splinters. My guess is that is the last question David probably ever wanted to hear. Most of us ever wanted to hear, but definitely at this time wanted to hear. Didn't seem like that long ago when the women were singing in the tens of thousands that David was killing his enemies in every village in Israel. It wasn't that long ago that he was a war hero, but now who's David? I think we can all probably rightly assume this has taken a toll on the soul of David. After so many big moments of strength and resolve and restraint, it was the little offhanded comment that got him. Like most powerful people, probably like most people in general, he would rather someone hunt him for days than offhandedly dismiss him and laugh at him. than someone not even get up from his dinner table to get the door than someone not even know his name. And David snapped. He told his men what they had been waiting to hear for a long time. Every man strap on his sword. David was about to ruin himself in this chapter. We're watching the unraveling of the anointed of God. See, in every other passage up to this point, the line of David has had to be preserved externally. We've had to fend off bears and giants and Saul like five times. But here the line is preserved by holding David back from himself. And God doesn't do it by the 600 men who are around him. He does it by one woman, the wife of his enemy. And we're introduced to the story and we probably all think, here we go, another guy attacking David. Throughout the David narrative, we are presented with various enemies of David. And as we approach this narrative, we assume that this fool is the new enemy of David. And in some ways we're right. And in some ways we are wrong when we come to this one. After all, all Nabal really did is insult David from his table, from his little party. A war hero like David should have been able to take a little insult like that. But this turned out to be an even deeper wound than any of the bears or Goliath or Saul would ever bring him. Here, David needs to be protected from himself. 
God preserves the seed even from David himself. And in his kindness, God not only restrained David's heart, but he gave him a wife. And the story feels so much like a happily ever after when we read verses 40 through 42. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, in case you forgot, we're in Carmel. David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And man, do I wish the chapter ended at verse 42. But there are two more verses. Verse 43. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. We all knew something more was coming in the life of David. We knew it didn't end here. Most of us went to Sunday school. We know the story isn't over. We know that a woman named Bathsheba is coming. That tragic event when David doesn't go to war and is checking out the structural integrity of his roof or something and then takes a second glance that sends his life into ruin, Bathsheba. Where was God there? Why didn't God pull him back again? If God can pull him back from killing this fat guy, why couldn't he pull him back from doing this? People often explain the Bathsheba story in terms of compromises. David, you should have been at war. David, you shouldn't have been on your roof. That's not safe. (laughs) I don't know exactly how war and roof walking work, but sin is usually deeper than war and roof walking, I think. A lot of you have stayed home from work and maybe walked on your roof while doing so, and you're not all adulterers. So sin is deep and it's slow. It takes hold of the heart long before it ever takes hold of the hands. And these last two verses of 1 Samuel 25 give us insight into David's life. He gets his beautiful and discerning and wise bride and he puts her on his donkey and he rides back to his harem, to his house full of wives. David knew that polygamy wasn't how God had designed marriage, but he added this new treasure to his other wives. This little episode helps to explain why the Bathsheba event ever happened in the first place. David escaped a tense moment of potential downfall, killing Nabal in cold blood. And we all rejoice together that God restrained him. But then he rides back to his much more subtle, much more settled, sinful home. And how often does that happen in our own lives? We win a little battle only to go home and lose a war. The theologian and pastor John Owen writes, quote, When men have long persisted in sin and burst through all the obstacles God has set up to stop them, God removes all restraints and gives them up to their heart's lusts to do the things that are not fitting, end quote. And I think that's what happened to David. You see him be restrained, and then you see David ride back to his life of unrestraint. 
I've heard it said that killing sin is much more like weeding, weeding than mowing, mowing. You just, you don't just repent of sin in general, but Christ in his grace wraps himself around each of our sins individually and plucks them out one by one by one. You see, David plucked one little weed. He let God hold him back from one little thing, killing Nabal, but he quit after one. So I just ask you, what do you do with the obstacles God places in your life? Do you pray that God would hold you back even from yourself? God, hold me back even from the silent, subtle sins in my own heart. The things that I actually don't even see. David should have continued to pray, God, restrain me, hold me back. But he didn't. And Bathsheba happened. And if you're here tonight and your life is filled with bad choices and you wonder, why doesn't God ever hold me back? Maybe you don't even feel his restraint. It feels like he's let go of his hand from you. Or maybe it was never there. I just want to explain to you how God restrains you, how it works. See, he breathes life into your soul. He awakens your dead heart with his calling, by calling your name. In the first gasp you have for air as coming from death into life is you love Christ. You love this person. And then your next gasp is you begin to repent of your sins, begin to turn away from these things because you love Christ. You have this new heart. And you look at the person of Christ in his perfect life and in his bloody death, and you just love him. And the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to your soul, his life and his death. And as you draw closer to Christ, as you keep loving him, his law suddenly becomes enjoyable. You don't have to keep being Nabal. You don't have to keep loving yourself. Now I can love other people. You don't have to jostle for position anymore. And you begin to love obeying him. And as you sin, you keep sinning. The law of God convicts you and it points you back. Look at Christ. And you pray with everything in you, God, help me to love Christ and to not ever sear, have a seared conscience. In your kindness, God, restrain me from the sin I see and from the sins that are so deeply buried into my habits that I don't even see them anymore. God, restrain me from those things. And you just keep looking at Christ. How ironic that Christ would come from the line of David here. How powerful and kind is God's providential care. He will protect his promise no matter what. He will not let anyone or anything, even yourself, get in the way of his promise. Being in the bundle of God's care means God will restrain you in his grace. So it's a good thing that he has his arms wrapped around you. And as much as this book of 1 Samuel is about David becoming king, it is even more about who really is on the throne. Yahweh, he turns king's hearts. He holds king's hearts in his hand. If he holds king's heart, it means he holds your heart in his hand. In his grace, he restrains and directs the hearts of kings and commoners just like us. And I think we can all just say praise be to God. Let that be true of our own lives. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you 
I come to you saying, please restrain me from my own sinfulness, from the sins I don't even see in my own life. Hold us back, God, in your kindness and your grace. Don't turn us over. Don't hand us over. Don't release your grip you have on us. We love you. You are a good and gracious king, as we sang earlier. And I pray that today in this text, we've seen one of the ways you rule and you sit on your throne is by restraining us from ourselves. We love you, Lord, and praise in Christ's name. Amen.